This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. I wanted to um, start this morning's talk with a uh, excerpt from the Suvarna Prabhasa Sutra, the Sutra of Golden Light. May those who are in danger of being threatened or killed by kings, thieves, or scoundrels who are troubled by hundreds of different fears. May all those beings who are oppressed by the advent of troubles be delivered from those hundreds of extreme, very dreadful fears. May those who are beaten, bound, and tortured by bonds, distracted by numerous thousands of labors, who have become afflicted by various fears and cruel anxiety, may they all be delivered. May the beaten be delivered from the beaters. May the condemned be united with life. May those beings oppressed by hunger and thirst obtain a variety of food and drink. This is our wish as practitioners um, it is what we extend out to the suffering of the world. Uh, it is what we extend to our own suffering um, and to all beings suffering. In Buddha's original formulation of suffering, of dukkha, he did not talk about it um, from the perspective of my dukkha or your dukkha my suffering or my unease, my dis-ease, or your dis-ease. He simply spoke of it as dukkha. Here is dukkha, and here are the causes of dukkha, and here are the, uh, the path to relieving dukkha. So the Four Noble Truths were not um, personalized in this sense. Um, we have a way of externalizing this um, and internalizing and getting caught in the midst of that dualism. We may hear of the teaching of oneness, of the teaching of um, interconnection. Maybe even we might say things or we might hear things like, we're all in this together, but we're not. On some level, yes, it's true. We are all, without exception, one body, one reality. We share this life, this world, this universe in the 10 directions. And yet, and yet, we cannot sink into this, uh, this oneness as if that were the only reality. It's called, uh, sometimes called emptiness, sickness. As you can tell, I am deeply, deeply disturbed. And um, I had been thinking about what I would speak about this, this week. And I came upon a beautiful, uh, I, 
during one of the practice discussions that I've had this week, I was um, reminded of a, a poem, which I will, I will return to. And I thought that would be a good starting point for a Dharma talk. This was um, maybe Thursday, Wednesday. And um, sorry, when I get to the poem, which is a Mary Oliver poem, the poem called uh, Wild Geese, for those of you who know it. Um, when I got to the last line of that poem, it, uh, it really struck me. Um, maybe I'll just read the last line and I'll come back to it uh, in full, in fullness uh, in a few minutes. The last line is, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. And again, on a very, very deep level, uh, this is true for all of us, without exception. Each of us has the seeds within for finding true peace, uh, for finding our inner goodness and ease. And yet, it is drastically withheld for some people, for some beings over others in our society, in this conventional world that we live in. So today I want to take this opportunity to, um, to name those in recent, just in the last week, just in, I mean, we can go back years and say, well, after uh, in 2000, I think 2014, when Trayvon Martin was shot down by uh, a do-gooder, someone who thought he was protecting his neighborhood, who was later uh, acquitted of that murder, and, and then Michael Brown in Ferguson, and people demanded change. And change didn't, maybe change happened slightly here and there. I know that, ch that change was, um, I don't mean to say that this wasn't brought, you know, uh, that police departments in cities across the country um, didn't look at their procedures and their policies they didn't look at their the the way that uh, practices like stop and frisk were just racial profiling. That they didn't look at those those um, systemic racist discriminatory practices. They didn't look because they some did and continue to, but enough enough. Just in this last. Uh, few weeks, we find out about the gunning down of uh, Armand Arbery in Georgia. And how long did it take before the perpetrators were even uh, charged? Former, former police officer. And then just this week, or last week, Breonna Taylor shot dead in her own home, a medical technician in Louisville, Kentucky, where uh, last night riots occurred. 
even someone who did not lose his life, but who uh, made its way into the, into the media, Christian Cooper, simply birdwatching in Central Park. And more recently, just this Monday, George Floyd, 46 years old, in Minneapolis, his life slipping away under the knee of someone who is there as uh, to protect and serve. Protect who? Serve who? I know that all of us uh, have a deep wish. I have no doubt that we all have a deep wish for change. We ask ourselves, what can I do? What can we do? And sometimes we get caught up in um, the bouncing back between outrage and uh, despondency. I know I do. What is there that we can rely on? How are the, what different ways do we uh, fail to pay attention? For those of you who uh, who ask these questions, you know there are there are ways of answering these questions in our society. With as a, a member of society, as a member of a community, as somebody who votes, as somebody who has the ability to write letters, as someone who has the ability to donate to organizations that are committed to undoing white supremacy. There are many things that we can do, starting with just the acknowledgement, simple acknowledgement of the fact that there is a discriminatory and unfair system stemming back for hundreds of years that you can't just, it, just, it doesn't just go away because it was uh, made illegal. So acknowledging this unfair system, number one, not noting the different ways, the myriad ways of structural discrimination and racism within our society from the redlining of the 30s through the 60s, $120 billion in the 1930s to the 1960s went to white families applying for loans for homes, not others. Which as we all know, led to further segregation an impact on uh, black and brown families' ability to leave an inheritance to their, uh, their children. The fact that our system uh, takes the money from property taxes and funnels it into those uh, jurisdictions, those local districts, school systems. And we see more and more gated gating communities how how ca our capitalist system allows those with money to isolate themselves from the 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 masses for their comfort for their ease to protect their property the discriminatory practices within our uh, 
police policing the differences in incarceration where somehow black men are make up the the populace the prison populace six times the amount of white men the fact that so-called black drugs like crack have 100 times harsher sentences than that of cocaine same drug different delivery mechanism so we have to acknowledge this as a starting place and then we go a little bit further we can acknowledge how do i benefit from this system actually What do I take for granted when I say things like, oh, these protesters who are throwing rocks should do something different. They should use their, uh, they, should, they should write to their, their representatives. They should vote. Yes, of course. I wanna um, acknowledge um, the chief of police of Atlanta, Erica Shields who I'm not sure if people uh, had, had, had seen this, but yesterday she went out to the protests that were happening in Atlanta and she met with individuals who were protesting and she just asked, she just came in and asked, what, do you, what are you saying to me? I want to listen to you. She agreed with the protesters. She said, yes, had they not been cops, they would have been arrested. She says, for what it's worth, we agree with you. She said, you're pissed off. You're afraid and nothing changes. I am with you. I am with you. Thank you, Erica Shields. What else can we do? When we ask the question or when somebody says the question or, or even in just in our minds, we may say to ourselves as a way of comforting ourselves. Well, I'm not racist. And I'd like to ask anyone, anybody who says those words to take a step back and turn the light inward. What do you mean by racism? Do you mean something that's uh, a form of overt racism with white hoods and cut out eyeballs and burning crosses? Is that what you mean? Just because racism was outlawed, overt racism. It just allowed things to go underground in our society, in ourselves, in our own hearts and bodies and minds. When we ask this question, what can we do? What can I do? How do we take a step back and return to our practice what is our practice what form of refuge can we find in our own practice are we uh are we practicing for the ability to peace out sometimes maybe right i also uh want to highlight the rap artist and activist Killer Mike, who starts by saying, 
I'm mad as hell. I woke up wanting to see the world burn yesterday because I'm tired of seeing black men die. He casually put his knee on a human being's neck for nine minutes as he died like a zebra in the clutch of a lion's jaw. So that's why children are burning it to the ground. They don't know what else to do. And it is the responsibility of us to make this better right now. We don't want to see one officer charged. We want to see four officers prosecuted and sentenced. We don't want to see target burning. We want to see the system that sets up for systemic racism burned to the ground. Killer Mike's own father was a cop. He started his speech by saying that he has great respect for law enforcement for parts of it. The answer is not to defund the police departments as some, I know some, some folks have called for. As practitioners, we have to look at our intentions. There are many people, uh, many uh, impulses to be uh, a so-called do-gooder, right? Very, very uh, invested and engaged in helping, in helping others with their dukkha. As Santikaro Bhikkhu says, often they are overly concerned with the dukkha of others to the degree that they fail to look within and see the dukkha that is inside them too. How when we, we separate you know, we, we, we're in this dance where my dukkha, your dukkha, uh, all's, we're all one and yet not. Where do we find ourselves in this dance? Tracy uh, Kramer, I don't know if you're here today, Tracy, but uh, on our AZC chat, the Discord app uh, chat room, he posted a Suzuki Roshi quote yesterday which I will read right now. He said, uh, Suzuki Roshi said, to realize that things are one is a very sympathetic understanding. But how to treat things one by one, each in a different way with full care, that I think is your practice. So when we find ourselves slipping into, um, you know, it's all one man, How can we see that as a, uh, how can we highlight that as, whoa, wait a minute here. Who are you serving? Who am I serving by uh, finding safety and solace in, in oneness? So if that tra from, I looked up that, uh, where that quote came from. And um, I wanna read it, a transcript of Suzuki Roshi's lecture. He says, the most important point of practice is to experience things directly one by one. And one experience should be the whole universe. To experience one, one right now, to experience one right now on this moment is to experience the whole world. So this is the only approach to the emptiness. This is a very important point. That is why we practice. This is the point of practice, okay? Very important point.
Maybe you must think it, about it over and over, you know, over and over again. And he laughs. It is comparatively easy to realize things are one. It is comparatively easy or easy to accept, you know. Maybe I, when I was about 26, 27 years old, you know, I had some discussion with my master about this point. At that time, I could accept that things are one. But it is, for me, it is very difficult for me to treat everything different. That was a very difficult practice for me. To treat things one by one and to treat one thing means to treat everything, all the rest of things. That much care should be paid when you treat one thing. So even though you understand that things are one, this, that's very, you know, it's a very, you know, kindergarten understanding. And then you start, to, you start how to treat things one by one, each different way, with full care. And then he says, that is your practice, you know. Unless you get through the idea of emptiness, you are not Buddhist. But if you stick to the emptiness, you know, if you cannot realize things happen in sheer emptiness, you are not Buddhist yet. Shinku myoyu, which means emptiness, every existence. Things we say should be something which arise from emptiness. So when we discover our true self, our big mind, um, maybe you call it your higher power. You might call it your inner loving parent. You can call it the one who is not busy when we're uh, overwhelmed with busyness, right? How do we take a step back and find the one that is at ease? Not by piecing out, not by sticking our heads in the sands, but the one that is at ease within and amidst the dis-ease, the unease, the unrest. How do we develop that capacity to stay with the human experience, which may not be my particular human experience in this moment, unless I open my heart and let it in, let in the cries of the world. This seed of ease and awakeness, we're told, we're taught that this seed resides in all of us. But that's not to say that we don't feel outrage, that we don't take a stand, that we don't call things out, that we don't show up amidst conflict, that we don't put our bodies into, into places of protest. There's a, a phrase in, in Zen called, um, I'm not sure if it's where it comes from, if it's Chinese uh, or if it's ja later Japanese phrase, but the phrase is that of the, um, the board carrying fellow. Some of you may have heard, heard of this board carrying fellow. You can imagine just a visual of carrying a board on your shoulder. So you have a board, you know, and you're carrying it. And it's, you know, you see this in cartoons. Sometimes in the Looney Tunes, you see somebody, you know, carrying a board and they look and they swing the board and they look this way and they just can't see anything on the other side of the board. Right. So a board carrying fellow uh, in Japanese, it's called Tambankan. 
Suzuki Roshi says, because he carries a big board on his shoulder, it blocks his view and he cannot see the other side. And then he says, almost everyone is carrying a big board and cannot see the other side. That goes for me, that goes for you. How do we acknowledge that there's a big board that we're carrying? The big board that you can call uh, privilege, you can call just uh, partial understanding, you can call it not knowing, not maybe even not wanting to know because sometimes knowing is frightening. So how, when we feel the fear, feel the outrage, feel the, uh, what we call afflictive emotions that could very well be a completely appropriate response to the suffering of the world. How do we make room for, how do we make space for that part of us that is shouting, no, this is not all right. This has to stop. How do we not smooth over that and say, oh no, as a good Buddhist, I should be at peace. That's bullshit. And I think every one of us knows it. So when we talk about discovering ease, it's not that we're whitewashing, there's a term for you. It's not that we're whitewashing away uh, the blemishes, the fears, the so-called afflictive emotions. We study the self because we're studying this seed of ease that can, can be nurtured within dis-ease. We learn through practice how to trust, trust that we can uh, develop our capacity to be with suffering. That is our, our number one goal as bodhisattvas is to be able to hear the cries of the world like Avalokiteshvara with a thousand arms and hands and implements to help suffering beings. It starts by acknowledgement of suffering. There is dukkha. And it's easy to lose ourselves. If we're not able to, uh, in our practice, allow for the full experience, the full range of our experience, if we're not able to develop the capacity of this heart to expand, to include everything, right? We can feel it in ourselves. We can feel when our heart is constricted, when our stomach is constricted, when our throat feels constricted. We can feel it. We can pay attention to it. Our vow is to stay upright amidst it, to not turn away. And then when we do turn away, which inevitably we do, how to not use blame and shame to avoid even looking in the future? How do we return to the present moment as part of our practice of developing this spaciousness within our hearts? Gil Fransdell, in his, uh, the first Dharma talk that he gave after receiving Dharma transmission, he says this. The present moment is trustable if you are present with it. 
if you can be fully, wholeheartedly, non-reactively here for what is going on in the present, then the present moment is trustable. If you are not present, if you are worrying about the future or preoccupied about the past, okay, let me just pause and say, automatically, if you're worrying about the future or preoccupied with the past, that like that kind of takes care of like a good chunk of our, our human experience, right? But when we are truly, really in the present moment, then we say it responds to the inquiring impulse from the song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi. Move and you are trapped, miss and you fall into doubt and vacillation, turning away and touching are both wrong for it is like a massive fire. He continues, if we are present for this wonderful interconnected reality of our present experience, then the inquiring impulse is present and what responds is trustable even in the midst of great difficulty. And I would say maybe especially in the midst of great difficulty to cultivate that trust in our spaciousness, our capacity, which again, the way to develop trust is to put it into practice, to put it into practice, to allow, to breathe, to notice the struggle, take it in, without judgment, without self-criticism. This is our practice. How do we nourish the space for our practice? There's a story, uh, another story I want to share. This one comes from Reb, uh, attention Reb Anderson. He's talking about Suzuki Roshi's second teacher, Kishizawa Eon, who, while as a young monk, he was sitting in meditation on a rainy day and he heard the sound of a distant waterfall. The Han was hit and Kishizawa Eon went to his teacher and asked, what is the place where the sound of the rain, the waterfall and the Han meet? His teacher replied, true eternity still flows also from the Song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi. And then he asked, this is Kishizawa Eon, what is this true eternity that still flows? It is like a bright mirror, permanently smooth. Mm, sounds nice, isn't it? The bright mirror, perfectly smooth, reflecting all without discrimination. Oh, how lovely, how beautiful. That's true reality. And then Kishizawa Ion asks, is there anything beyond this? Yes, his teacher responds. What is beyond this? And his teacher said, break the mirror, come and I'll meet you. And then Reb continues, when we are at this source, sitting completely still, all Buddhas and sentient beings are there with us. Then, because we are alive, this calm mirror experience breaks and clouds of thinking crop up. At this point, we don't have to think, now I must be compassionate. Just being willing to give up great calm and to become involved again in particular thoughts is compassion. 
In this way, we knowingly and willingly re-enter the world of confusion and suffering. So how do we let that sink into our bones? How do we knowingly and willingly uh, step out of our serene bubble of calm tranquility on our little black zafus? How do we step out of that into the world of confusion and suffering? Do we just throw ourselves in and grab a Molotov cocktail, start throwing? Maybe sometimes we do. And then we confess and we repent because that's not gonna help. Reb continues, clouds crop up at the source of all thought. At that point, we feel connection with all the, the different varieties of suffering. We sit calmly without fear. We are open and at ease. We could stand up from our sitting and walk to hell, walk to heaven, or walk to the animal realm. We can also welcome them if they come to us. From this place, compassion is not dualistic. We don't do it and we cannot stop it. Our body interacts fearlessly with all forms of suffering. This does not mean that fear does not exist or that it does exist. It means that we are open to all varieties of fear so that the forces around us are balanced. We do not have more friends in heaven than we have in hell. If we have too many friends in heaven and not enough in hell, then there will be fear so we can look at the community that we live in. Do we know more people in heaven than in hell? If we do, we are not truly calm. If we observe our own body and mind as we are sitting and find that we have more friends in heaven than in hell or more friends in hell than in heaven, we have not yet realized the calm of Buddha's mind. Whenever our mind is completely open and we are not controlling what we are exposed to, the body and mind can sit still in the heart of all suffering beings. That is all we have to do. And then he ends by saying, everything else will take care of itself, which is a huge statement. Everything else will take care of itself. All we have to do, oh, how comforting. But it's a tall order, isn't it? How do we stay with this present moment, feeling uh, without hesitation? How do we open our hearts to feel completely what we're feeling, what the world may be feeling? How do we develop that capacity? How do we water the seed, the seed that has the potential to sprout into a giant banyan tree? So, one of our uh, one of our members um, has been working on lojong slogans and was particularly uh, gripped recently by slogan number thirty, which is often translated as "Don't be so predictable." But uh, he was working with a translation that's that. Uh, said, don't rely on your good nature. 
And uh, that's, that's really hard practice, right? When I, when I actually uh, read what he had written and sent to me about this slogan, I, it was, I was not familiar with that translation because normally it, it, in nu- numerous translations, it's tra- translated as don't be so predictable. But uh, to take up this, this uh, the slogan of don't rely on your good nature was fascinating to me. And just seeing the ways in which I rely on what I think of as my good nature over and over again. It's the same seed. That, that thinking can be, you know, how is that a trap, right? How, how, is that, uh, how does that hinder us from actually seeing? How is our good nature actually the board that we're carrying? How do we ask this question in a way that's, um, that is uplifting? That's not about shaming. Right? How do we ask the question of, well, how am I participating in a racist system of discrimination that is structural, that has been in place for hundreds of years, if not longer? How am I participating and benefiting from the system? Right? How do we ask that question with hopefulness as opposed to sinking into a swamp of uh, inactivity and uh, just hope, hopeless, you know, I can't do anything. In, uh, in Charo's class on the Edge States, we had a discussion this past week on... Um, the difference between empathy and compassion, right? And the idea of empathy being, um, the empathy is a, is a way that you feel the suffering of others, right? But just feeling the suffering of others, how much can we take of just feeling the suffering of others, really? What is compassion, however? Compassion is different from empathy. Maybe compassion needs to start with empathy, but it goes a little bit further. And that little bit further makes all of the difference because it's developing a capacity. It is actually, uh, as uh, Joro pointed out in the class, you know, empathy, you can get fatigued by feeling, by uh, empathizing with suffering. It's very fatiguing. It makes us, it brings us down. It saps our energy. Compassion, however, whether it's actively participating, uh, we're actively practicing compassion or it is arising naturally from our ability uh, to resonate deeply and get in touch with our deep wish for the end of dukkha. But compassion starts with a wish. It's very easy to, to fall into, well, how can I help and not find a way that's uh, convenient, easy, quick at hand, and then to feel uh, dis- dismay, despondency can come. How do we make room for that too? How do we welcome the entirety of our experience 
not just the parts that we like, right? How are we going to develop an ease with our dis-ease if we're constantly turning away from our dis-ease? So our practice asks something very, very important of us, which is to allow whatever is arising in this present moment, to allow it, to fully engage it, experience it, notice what is brought up in our bodies and our minds, to welcome them, all of our experience, our, the full range of our experience. And only then can we move forward with acknowledgement and action that comes out of that acknowledgement. Sometimes you may hear uh, Zen, Zenies say things like, not knowing is most intimate. Well, let's be clear. We can't reside in not knowing as a, as a, a cop-out. Don't use it as a cop-out to, uh, to not act. If we're not trying our utmost to know, the not knowing is most intimate, is, is, is saying, don't rest in thinking that you know something. How do you open your heart? How do you open your mind to curiosity, to wonder, to see the, uh, um, the karmic habit patterns that are ingrained in our bodies, in our thinking? You know, how do we open up to that? How do we open up to, to feeling the weight of the board that we carry? And how do we not uh, rely on this, um, this sense of ourselves that, uh, oh, well, we're good natured. You know, I, I have good nature. How do we not rely on that good nature? So I want to go back and read the Mary Oliver poem. And this came up in a, in the context, you know, it's sort of the th thought of, I actually was, um, I was thinking about this one aspect of this poem where she talks about the soft animal inside us, right? So let me read the poem and then I'll say a few words. This is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair. Sorry, tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place 
in the family of things. This soft animal, this soft animal of our bodies, it might be a soft animal that's relaxed and lying in the sun and just stretches out and sighs. The soft animal might be cowering in fear, trying to find a place to hide. The soft animal could be rearing its teeth, ready to bite at provocation. The soft animal could be uh, settling down for the night, feeling content and at ease. How do we make room for the soft animal of our life rather than what sometimes we do, which is to exile, exile the soft animal if we don't like what it's feeling? When Mary Oliver says, tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. This human suffering that connects all of us, it's right there, this interconnect, interconnection, right? And yet, in the next line, meanwhile, the world goes on. The world goes on. So amidst the, uh, you could call them riots, I think I call them protests that are happening across the country, um, the world goes on, right? In myriad ways. There's a rally happening tomorrow at Austin's capital. How do we hold that in our heart? Even if we decide we're not gonna go, we are gonna go. How do we hold it in our hearts? How do we stay connected to our own soft animal and what it calls to us what it loves, what it's afraid of, what it needs, what it desires, what nourishes it. In our precept study group right now, we've been talking about what it means to take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And uh, we've spent a long, many weeks now on the last, what does it mean to take refuge in Sangha? especially when we think of a sangha as being a wide net of sangha that includes everyone, that includes all beings. What does it mean to take refuge in the Dharma, in reality, unfolding all of it, not just the parts that we like? What does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha, in our awakened nature? in being able to uh, stay present, to come back to this moment, to make room in our hearts for things that maybe there's a part of us that doesn't want to make room for it. How do we make room for that too? So I think, um, I'm not really sure how to end this. Dharma talk. 
maybe I'll open it up right now to any comments or questions or thoughts that uh, those of you out there who are listening might have. Please, you may unmute yourselves and uh, share. Mako. Hi, Charo. Thank you for your talk. Thank you for your wide openness and your vulnerability and for sharing it with us, encouraging us to do likewise. And um, what came up uh, in thinking about the protests this morning and listening to you is um, how careful we've been to protect ourselves, our cocoon of um, sheltering in place and um, what really struck me was people in the streets don't have that option or they feel they don't have that option. They never had that option. And they're um, putting their bodies on the line in a way that all protesters do. But in this time of pandemic, it's, it's so powerful. And I've been finding myself wondering, should I be doing that too? Should I give up my safety, my perceived safety? I don't know, I'm just, it's just what came up. Thank you. I acknowledge your questions. I, I have them myself. Thank you, Marco, for a, a deeply, deeply moving and felt talk. That was really a wake up call for me and probably others. Well, thank you. Thank you, Pat. I was um, really touched in particular by your focus on um, how our better self can blind us and wanting to be a good person um, and to sort of cling to that. Um, and it just, it strikes me as that's really profound and um, we can use it as an excuse in so many ways for not seeing the world as it is. Yeah, yeah, it's really sobering to see to catch ourselves in the act of it, actually. Thank you, David. Yes, Anne. I was just thinking that um, in this time of pandemic, it's like getting we're getting this diagnosis that we have the disease of white supremacy and now we need to do something to treat it. That's all I have to say. Thank you for your talk. Thank you, Anne. We do. The disease of white supremacy is runs through uh, this entire world and it resides in every single being. Whether it's uh, externalized racism or internalized racism, just participating in a system that promotes this structural racism. Um, 
we're all part of that. And how do we say no? I don't want to be a part of this. There isn't one way, right? I'm not going to be able to tell you what to do <laughs> to, to solve this, right? This is a wrestling with, uh, that we do. I'm just talking about how do we cultivate and nourish the capacity to ask these questions, to not be, uh, to not sink into despondency. There's so many ways, there's so many ways to deceive ourselves. And how do we do it in a way that is, um, compassionate to ourselves as well, right? Because if we bring out the big guns and turn them against ourselves, that soft animal that I was talking about, that Mary Oliver is talking about, what is that gonna do? Fight, flight, freeze, right? Developing ease, I just wanna say that, you know, when I say, uh, that our practice is to develop ease. I think it's really important that that ease is not at the expense of um, feeling outrage, feeling anger, feeling vulnerability for sure, right? The ease that we're developing is actually the place that we um, most, um, most appropriately have a response, right? When we're at ease, our true nature of open awareness is allowed to come forward. When we're constricted and frightened, how do we find the ease with the constriction and the, the, the fear? If we can take that step back, we can always, always, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just planting a tiny seed of a question that says, how do I accept this fear that I'm feeling? How do I do this? How do I turn towards it as opposed to turning away? Even just dropping that question into our daily life, into our ordinary run-of-the-mill life, that allows for uh, some little bit of spaciousness. We can use our breath to do this. So maybe ease can be felt like, how do I find ease in this situation? Could be turning towards uh, the feeling of breath in our body, right? We can look, uh, look we can um, experience the feeling of spaciousness just by taking a breath. Maybe if that's not working, we can, um, we can find ease in, in our sight. We can gaze out to something uh, spacious like the, so the sky, like water, like nature. And we can breathe into that and find a little bit of ease there. Our best selves are not gonna come forward from places of constriction. Not to say that we can't, you know, that if we're feeling constricted, we shouldn't act, right? but we can pause and invite a little bit of ease with that constriction before acting. 
it's a challenge. It's a challenge that is uh, called practice. Uh, someone just shared the, uh, the quote from the Book of Serenity on not knowing. Dijong asks Fion, where are you going? Why frame the man? Fion said, around on pilgrimage. He goes looking for money to buy sandals. Dijong said, what is the purpose of pilgrimage? After all, he doesn't let him go. Fion said, I don't know. Dijong said, not knowing is most, is nearest. And then she says, ignoring the commentary in the parentheses and thinking about going on a pilgrimage. What does it mean to go on pilgrimage? Putting ourselves out there vulnerable to what is happening. Thank you. Are there any other uh, expressions that people, someone would like to share? Hey, Marco. Hi, Karen. So I, um, one of the things you said about um, the term, uh, like, I'm not a racist. I, I really am feeling like right now that, that thinking about retiring that phrase um, <laughs> could be a good practice. Um, in a recent class, there was a, a teaching um, by a Buddhist teacher who told the story of being in South Africa and being in a, a grocery store and just making an assumption about somebody else that they were trying to help her when they were uh, getting something for themselves and understanding how there was a racist conditioning in her uh, just coming up without her being even aware of it and um, that being open enough to know that that's going to be happening, that that can be happening. Um, so that it doesn't really make any sense to say, I'm not a racist. It's, it's not, it's not like that. And this conditioning is, is there. And so part of that practice is, is this being open and ease enough to bring that into awareness when it happens. And um, so that's one thing I'm, I'm thinking about. So I appreciate your, your bringing that out. I just really appreciate this talk very much. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Yeah, the, what you're bringing up is, um, you know, we're, it's, it's challenging to be open to our vulnerability, right? Nobody, nobody thinks that they're racist. Well, maybe some people do but nobody I know, <laughs> at least I think, think not. Um, so if we start with like, how do I be open to my own, uh, you know, to, how do I be open to things that I'm not, uh, I don't think I'm open, I don't, I know I'm not open to. 
How do I be open to the things that make me uncomfortable? The ways in which I, um, um, to my own vulnerability really is what it comes down to. How do I be open to my own vulnerability? Shu writes, thank you, Marco, for prompting us to act by treating each one in front of us with care, more than equanimity, action with compassion. Yeah, yeah. And compassion, as you may all know, it starts by being able to be compassionate with one's own uh, vulnerabilities and hurts, right? Um, it's, it's a lifelong process. Finding compassion is a lifelong practice. I can speak from my own experience. It's really hard sometimes to find compassion. I have a, a way that uh, can, can kind of like be compassionate to others, but not to myself. And I know that undermines the, you know, the compassion that's actually available, the resources that are available for others benefit, for all beings benefit, right? Beyond my dukkha, your dukkha, right? Yes, Pat. I heard a quote um, on the radio a few months ago that's really stuck with me. Uh, a person said that uh, vulnerability is no different from courage. Mm. Yeah. I love that. So true. Yeah. Hey, Marco. Hi, Mary. Hey. I just wanted to share an experience of that really touched me deeply, which is uh, a good friend of mine who, uh, a colleague, and um, she contacted me yesterday morning. She was weeping. She's, she's African-American and she was right. She was having to work on a, a very white institutional statement about her accomplishments in the midst of all of this. And she was weeping about how hard that was for her to do and how meaningless it felt in the midst of all of this. And and it was, she was being hard on herself and she's accomplished so much in terms of like setting, hiring people of color and building a program to enhance diversity science. She's, she's like one of the most amazing people, right? But she was having a hard time remembering how to be kind to herself. But she did this remarkable thing, which was to reach out in the midst of her sense of isolation and aloneness and her vulnerability to touch, to, to, to help me through this. And so I think so much of the time, that's the first step towards finding our way is to connect and reach out for others to remind us how to be gentle and loving towards ourselves. Um, and I had, I, I, I was struggling with how to do that for her, how to be there for her. And she was struggling with how to let me come in closer. And 
but the awfulness and outrage and all that had to be talked about in order to get to a place of, I think for her to settle into herself again and remember her, you know, that to find her ease in the midst of this incredible chaos. But it was just, it woke me up from my own remoteness. Mm -hmm. uh, her, the reality of this, just turning her world upside down in a way that it doesn't turn my world upside down. Yeah. But I also feel this tremendous love that, that flows from our effort to try to, to meet each other in, in the middle of it all. Anyway, I just wanted to share that because it was, it helped me kind of, it made everything more real. You have a good friend. Yes. Revealing our true nature, that is love, that we forget that we can so easily forget, that can return to. Thank you, thank you for sharing that, Mary. How do we hold these uh, experiences that are so painful? How do we hold them in hopefulness? I mean, that's the, that's the big question, right? How do we not get consumed by and uh, oppressed ourselves by the weight of the world such that we don't we don't even look we check out Monko, i've been thinking about this and i i don't know i still don't know what action to take what to do or not but i find myself wanting to in that thread of um looking to the lives of of people who who took action um i was thinking about an article about uh, larry kramer's life who just just died this week aids activist um and and i don't know if his, he he may have had a lot of suffering in his life i'm not sure um how he did that but um the headline on it was um that he had the courage to act on his fear mm -hmm. and um the writer said he had kind of a catastrophic imagination. Um, and, but because he had that imagination, he acted over and over again throughout his life. And it was often angry and he, uh, you know, he was afraid and um, it wasn't perfect or easy. Um, but, you know, he changed Anthony Fauci's life and um, in getting him to allow AIDS active AIDS, people with um, HIV to get medication um, before it was approved, you know, which had not been done before. Um, and I was thinking about his life and action, you know, there was one way and I'm thinking about Gandhi and Thich Nhat Hanh and Martin Luther King. And um, I just feel like I wanna go back at this time to, people who did that. I don't know. That's one way I guess I find out of despair is, is being yeah. inspired by people like that. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's why I, I, you know, I read the 
the brief excerpt from um, Killer Mike. I found that very inspiring. And and if you haven't seen seen him uh, give his speech, you can uh, please you know check it out. And the same thing with um, um, uh, watching Erica, the poli- the Atlanta police chief, meeting with protesters like face to face, like really she's in the throngs of protesters in full uniform saying, I'm here, I hear you, right? We need sources of inspiration, right? Thank you, thank you, Karen, for sharing that. I wonder if uh, we, you know, last week after David Chadwick uh, spoke, um, for the first time, we we broke into small groups after the Dharma talk. This is kind of our virtual tea and cookie time. Um, maybe we'll we'll do the chant, the end of lecture chant. But then afterwards, I was going to uh, invite people who would like to um, participate in a small group discussion um, to just stay online, and you will be magically transported into another room with uh, a random assortment of Sangha members to have a, uh, a conversation. And I, I'll just say that please don't feel obligated to stay in a conversation for a long time. You might just check in and say, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see you. And I'm going to go take care of some business that I have to do in my, in my you know, Saturday afternoon or what have you. But I just encourage people to, um, to try it out, right? And maybe just, uh, Take a moment to connect with some of uh, some of our, you know, beautiful sangha members. So maybe right after the the end of lecture chant. Thank you all very much. <laughs>